Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, if we didn't have a VanCast scheduled already, we absolutely would schedule one because if ever a day called for an emergency VanCast, this was it, Harmondal. We were scheduled to record this morning at 10 a.m., but we've decided, no, no, something more pressing happened. Jim Rutherford talked, and Jim Rutherford talked, and Jim Rutherford talked. And and we say that with, with all sorts of respect and positivity because we're thrilled that he did because this was a much much long overdue, my friend. 100%. And that's, I think, a great place to start is I'm sure there, there will be a lot for us to disagree with in terms of what he actually said and discussing, you know, the, the future of this franchise. But for him to kind of be out there for almost an hour fielding our questions, and there was even a point where uh, the PR director was sort of um, ushering to, to the media that all right, we're, we're done with questions here. And, and Rutherford was like, no, no, like we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to stay here and address all your questions and concerns. And the other thing I give him credit for, which I think is, was really important for the fan base is he didn't duck questions or lean into meaningless platitudes or speak in circles or uh, get into word salads. This wasn't like uh, a Patrick Elvin press conference, right? Where you go in and you ask a bunch of pointed questions <laughs> and it's like you don't even, on the other end of it, you don't even feel like you've gained an understanding of where the team's at. Rutherford was super blunt, super honest, super direct, and I think that's a level of accountability that's needed in a situation like this. So first off, before we even really dissect what he said, I think it's it's important that he stepped in there and um, and actually spoke for Canucks fans because they've been looking for answers as to why they're in this position, what comes next. And I think that was uh, absolutely vital. So, so that everybody understands, if you didn't already hear the availability earlier, this all came at the impetus of uh, the Tanner Pearson situation. So, I actually reached out to the, the to the club's PR staff uh, late last week and said, "Look, the first day they get back, I think it's appropriate now at the midway point of the season that you make Jim Rutherford available." Right? I mean, usually. Uh, GMs or or whoever will you'll have periodic availabilities. We're not halfway through a season, and certainly some of us have had a chance to talk to him in a one-on-one setting. But in terms of a group availability, ask everybody's questions um, in in a less controlled environment, right? To be quite frank, uh, that that it was long overdue. Uh, they made him available, and certainly the the Tanner Pearson situation accelerated all of that. But really, the so what they did is they had. Uh, Dr. Bill Regan and Dr. Uh, Harry Cece, uh, uh 
flanking Jim Rutherford. They did the availability for, on the medical side, and then they stepped away and he stood in and answered questions. And quite frankly, all the other questions rendered the medical part of it moot because uh, like, I'm not going to say that wasn't important. It was important and we'll get to all of that, but it really became secondary to all the other questions surrounding the organization. What's the direction? Uh, you know, where are your frustrations? What's happening with Bruce Boudreaux? What's happening with Bo Horvat? And on and on down the list. And as it related to the medical questions, really what became more important was have the players lost faith as opposed to the um, the detail of how the medical hierarchy is set up and where things went wrong as far as Tanner Pearson's concerned. Yeah, especially because of the uh, privacy and confidentiality um, related to patient care. Uh, the medical staff was pretty honest and, and the doctors were pretty honest in saying, look, we can't dev divulge much about the situation. All they kind of left it at was there were two setbacks and they weren't able to get into the nature of those setbacks. And they also weren't able to address what Pearson's timeline could look like in terms of what's the status looking for next season. So there wasn't a lot of clarity really on what went wrong aside from them clarifying the checks and balances that kind of occurred in the review process that, uh, that that the club did over the weekend. And as the conversation kind of shifted to what you mentioned, where it was, okay, is there a greater, bigger picture concern there? It seemed like, I mean, Rutherford was pretty confident that he didn't feel that there would be a, a longstanding um, impact related to this incident. Although, he mentioned that he hasn't really talked to uh, talked to players. He hasn't really even talked to Quinn Hughes. Uh, he was obviously the one that made the comments. Rutherford said that, hey, I don't have an issue with him speaking up in that way. Um, and he did say that Alvin spoke to Hughes. So hopefully that um, helped clear things up. But overall, it is interesting to me that they kind of did this review and they haven't really had a chance to... Um, consider the concerns of the players and, and have those conversations because I think um, that's one of the most important parts of sort of this review process and trying to take what happened with Pearson and, and make sure that it doesn't have a negative impact for the club moving forward. Yeah, you know, and, and um, he did say that Alvin spoke to all the players, yeah. right? Or as many of the players as possible, not just Quinn Hughes uh, as they went through the exercise. And, you know, for, for me, like, it's just... It's the cherry on top of just what has been so much drama surrounding this team. You know, and I asked him, I go, you know, if, are you concerned that a player like Elias Pedersen, who you can negotiate a contract with this offseason, is, is so concerned about many of the things that are going on? And, and, you know, he wasn't. But before we go too down, too far down the, the rabbit hole of the medical side of it, let's get into some of the bigger picture topics. Um, and let's start with the direction of this team. And how management views it. Now, on the subject of Team Tank, I asked the question that, you know, are you willing to go down this road? And, and he said, yeah. Like, I mean, the quote of the day was, I thought we were tanking already. And that was shocking that he would admit we're going down that way. Except what we've always said, whether it's the two of us or even Drancer, that there's never been an intentional path to that. It's kind of fallen into their lap because they've sucked so bad that here they are in the standings and now they've got to kind of embrace the tank, as it were. And Jim Rutherford said that 
look, we can't expect the players and the coaches to do anything but play to the best of their ability and try to win every game. But he did acknowledge that the decisions the organization above the coach can make going forward could certainly lend itself to putting the team in the best draft position possible. So in terms of a micro, uh, you know, yeah, we're kind of willing to tank, but maybe not from a big picture perspective. What was your takeaway from just that side of it? That, yeah, our decisions now, from now till the end of the year, will be based with that in mind. Yeah, it was interesting. I think right off the bat, the whole idea of I thought we were tanking that that that's that's nonsense in my opinion because your action like the organization's actions didn't align with that, right? You go out and you re-sign Miller, Besser, um, sign the McKay of contract, create more cap uh, problems for yourself down the line. You trade the second round pick to dump uh, Dickinson's contract for short-term cap flexibility and instead just bring Riley Stillman in. Like that does that, that those moves, especially when you then in the offseason don't acquire any draft picks or make any trades really to get younger, that doesn't align with an organization that's looking to tank, especially because to get to the bottom with the Connor Bedard sweepstakes, you're you're dealing with competition that's purposely built their entire season around that. When you look at what Chicago's done, when you look at when you look at the state of San Jose, when you look at Arizona, like you're you're just not going to get to the bottom unless you before the season had intentionally set yourself up for that. So they're really in this position down in the standings because they've gotten their teeth kicked in and they've failed on the on um, the strategy that they set for themselves, especially when you had uh, or earlier in in the season someone like uh, Bruce Boudreaux in training camp going, it's going to be a massive disappointment, massive letdown for this franchise if we don't make the playoffs. So that doesn't align with what they were trying to do at all. Beyond that, I did find it really interesting that even, I can't remember if it was you that asked um, or someone else, but there, were, there was a question thrown to Rutherford about whether the state of the tank could affect how uh, how quickly Demko's reintegrated. And I'm not. Oh yeah, that yeah, that was a great question. And I'm not gonna lie, I was surprised at how long Rutherford paused and really considered that yeah. before. Oh yeah, saying he hadn't thought yeah. about it. So that was really interesting to me, and I, and I do think that behind the scenes, not necessarily from a ta- not that uh, people have necessarily thought about this from a tanking perspective, but I, I I do think that there's been some thought to the idea of not that you're gonna hold him back, but when you do think about. Demko's recovery and how much of a workload are you going to throw at him um, once he does become healthy, knowing that, okay, this is probably a lost season. And based off of that, we need to be extra cautious, extra careful. So I think that's already sort of a consideration. Again, not necessarily from a tanking perspective and we're trying to lose games, but more from a sense of, okay, we're probably not going to make the playoffs this season. So we we can afford the luxury of really being patient with uh with Demko and again I was just really surprised at how long Rutherford sort of sat and thought about that um you don't usually have a manager in that situation when a topic's thrown at him related to a tank and a key player coming back um really pondering that yeah you know and the, and the Demko thing is tricky right uh, and we'll get into kind of the big picture version of tank versus rebuild versus retool but. We'll get into the big picture. As far as Demko is concerned, yes, you hold him back to make sure he's 100% ready, which is kind of what he was alluding to. And didn't, again, he, it's not like he dismissed the question, right? Like he just said, I haven't thought about it in those terms yet, which surprises me. 
But number one, you can t- play the long game and make sure he's 100% healthy. So is there an advantage to holding him back longer for purposes of said tank? Sure there is. However, I do think that they also want to make sure by the end of the year, he feels like he's got his game back. Because mm-hmm. the reality is, you know, we can talk about the injury all we want. His game wasn't there before the injury. It wasn't. Yeah. And nobody 100%. yet has tied injury to why his game was ordinary, right? Like nobody has come out and speculated, even the Kevin Woodleys of the world, that that injury didn't lead to his poor performance, right? Like the injury that he w- w- had surgically repaired in the summer, which we were all told was a minor procedure. Nobody has since said that resulted in his play or resulted in further injury. Right. Nobody mm-hmm. has connected those yep. dots. So for me, he can't blame his performance, which was substandard on the injury. Therefore, after the injury, he needs to get his game back. He needs to get into the offseason thinking I'm Thatcher effing Demko of 2020-2021, right? Or 21-22, as opposed to what we saw this year. He needs to get that part of his game back. So there still does need to be a, a period of time whenever he does come back where he's back to playing at a really, really high level so he can go into the offseason without any doubts. The other idea just related to, to this idea of tanking for this season and uh, the, the direction of this team, that's why it's a little bit strange for me, The all the rumors around making a coaching change midseason. And sure, if you like I, at a certain point, you feel for Boudreaux and if he's not going to be your guy, absolutely, I think you got to consider letting him, letting him go. but. I would almost rather want to have an internal sort of just interim head coach like Mike Yo take over the reins as opposed to bringing in someone like Rick Tockett or whoever you're you're targeting to bring in as your head coach for the risk of uh, dead cat bounce. We see it all the time around the NHL. New coach comes in and it's proven that there is an initial spark that a team gets in, in looking at the state of this team, the number of games they've lost recently how bad it looks it's you're almost disrupting that downward trajectory of the team by bringing in a new coach if you do it let's say around around the time of the all-star game although i under, also understand the uh, the other side of the coin where it's like from management's perspective they probably want to see whoever their coach whoever the coach is whether it's talking or somebody else if they make that change have an opportunity to work with the team work with the players um, instill some of those habits early, instill some of the structure early so that it's an easier sort of transition going into next season. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's, let's digest some of the other commentary that, um, that came from Jim today. Uh, let's start with, I'm disappointed in myself. And, and you know, the, I think the biggest frustration that Jim has had through all of this was the challenges of trying to carve out cap space. Yeah. Right. So there was never a rebuild coming. Uh, it was carve out cap space so we could go spend more money to be competitive today and take a run at the playoffs today. Right. Like that's what this was all about. And there are big, big cap problems in the form of Tyler Myers. There are medium cap problems or, or still sizable in the form of Tyler Myers, Brock Besser, and uh, Connor Garland. I'm not yeah. missing anybody there, am I? I I guess Pullman, but they're probably just going to stash him on LTIR forever. Yeah. So you know, and and 
they created one of those cap problems, right? Because they're the guys that made the decision he did on Brock Besser. So whether he would, you know, it was difficult to move because of the complications surrounding the QO. Anyway, listen, let's not dive too deep into Brock, but those are where the cap problems lie. A mega, mega, mega cap problem in uh, Oliver Ekman Larson. The Myers one is a big one, but only for another year, yeah. right? Which will eventually get us to the topic of buyout. And then there's Connor Garland and Brock Besser that are cap problems, but not as big a number for Garland, not as much term for Besser, but things that are going to have to be navigated around uh, that all of a sudden Besser went from an asset to a problem. Um, really disappointed in himself because he couldn't carve out cap flexibility. But then at the same time, he's talking about the cap going up exponentially. And there was a lot of this in this press conference, mixed messaging, right? Where you talk about, well, the core is not so bad, but then we've got to move core pieces and make unpopular decisions. But I'm disappointed in myself, primarily because of an inability to move cap problems. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, 100%, he inherited a tough situation from Jim Benning. And I don't, I don't think anybody blames him if he's in a spot where he can't say move, where he wasn't able to let's say move the Myers contract in the summer, or some of these other inefficient deals. Like I know they tried hard on Tanner Pearson in the summer as well. I don't think anybody would have blamed him if the only issue was they couldn't move the pre-existing deals from the last regime. The problem is if you've eaten a whole box of chocolates and you have a stomach ache. Don't eat a second box of chocolates. And I think that's the issue when you look at them compounding their own issues by then going out and re-signing Miller, by by them going out and re-signing Besser, by them also signing uh, Ilya Mikheyev. They, they added a ton of money to the books in these contracts and only made the situation that they have to untangle themselves out of this offseason and in future summers to come even more challenging, even more difficult. So... That was that was my sort of uh, s- sort of initial takeaway, and then what it means sort of moving forward is okay. When you step back, the other interesting thing that uh, that Rutherford said in relation to the idea of I'm disappointed in myself for being unable to sort of solve this uh, solve these cap issues is he also continually reiterated multiple times that his group basically can't fix the team until the cap situ- situation is solved. Right now, you couple that with Rutherford already sort of admitting when he was talking about the Horvat um, uh, about Horvat's future that when they did their internal cap projections, they're already kind of in a tight, problematic spot where, if based off the last deal that they that they uh, offered to Horvat, once you baked that into into consideration and, and sort of just had a status quo as the baseline, that they're already capped out for next season, that they're over the cap. And obviously, again, he noted there's going to be potential buyouts, there's going to be trades, there's going to be moves. But from a status quo baseline where you're starting from, you're still just as screwed, if not more screwed this summer. So the question that I have then is, okay, if you weren't able to fix it last summer, how are you going to fix it this summer? And if you're saying that you can't turn the team around until you fix these cap issues, then how can you execute or retool successfully? Well, on top of that, like I asked him directly, 
Like it feels like for all the cap issues you've said, you're doubling down. You doubled down here with the JT Miller deal, like to your point, Harm. And what did he say? That contract is not going to be a problem. It's not going to affect us from doing the things we need to do because the cap's going to go up. It's going to be 90 million, 95 million. It's going to keep going up and up. So if you say that the JT Miller deal is not going to hurt your cap because the cap's going up, yet your biggest problem is trying to carve out cap space. Well, pick a lane, man. Especially because it and has it, also, it's already hurt them. It's, it's, right? like, it that's is the why. single biggest reason they can't keep Bo Horvat. Exactly. So like that deal, like, and, and people will say, well, you wouldn't want to resign Horvat at this point anyway. And that's true. You wouldn't want to resign him now. But if you had committed to the direction of trading Miller last off season, you would have gotten that contract done in the summer when, if you'll remember all the initial reporting going into the off season was this idea that Horvat's camp is, is interested. And it seemed like there was positive mo- momentum building towards the idea of the two sides coming to agreement on an extension so you would have been able to get that done at a reasonable number not the not the eight plus million dollar sort of cap hit that it might take today yeah like they ultimately they made the choice right like they thought they could get one done easier they didn't they panicked they went to the other one and one is going to keep you from having the other so like you can't say that the jt miller deal isn't going to impact us when it already is impacting you but there, there was so much of that mixed messaging. So we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into this concept of rebuild versus retool and whether or not Rutherford has a true understanding of what this market wants when the VanCast comes back. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To rebuild versus retool, Harm. Seriously, we're going back to 2014. Remember when Trevor Linden said it? <laughs> That we, you know, we don't want to rebuild. We think we can retool. And then they went out and signed Louis Erickson for six years at six million per the Albatross contract that they finally got rid of, but they didn't get rid of it until they acquired Oliver Ekman Larson. So he said that we don't think this is going to take that long. You know, Drancer asked the question and Jim spun it back to him and said, how long? What do you think? How long? And Drancer said three years. And he said, oh, that's fair. We think we can do it in less than that. We can do it in two years, I guess, is what he meant. And I don't know if he's included the year that we've already been through or not. But he talked about, you know, a long rebuild. And, you know, the the term patience was used. And everybody wants this to happen now. Everybody wants this to happen in a hurry. Actually, Jim, no, we don't. And I don't think the fans do either. 
But it it almost felt like he was saying that, look, I know everybody wants this turned around in a hurry. Actually, I shouldn't say he, he was saying that directly. And I'm not sure he quite understands. And I wish I had asked him this. I wish I had asked him directly. Jim, what do you think the fans want? I wish I had asked him that directly. And I certainly asked him my fair share of direct questions. But it seems like that little bit of reality is missing because he thinks fans want this turned around in a hurry. And I'm not sure they do. I just think they want vision and a plan with an ability to execute. And I think people want to give him that benefit of the doubt that he has the ability to execute because he's done that, but certainly hasn't done that in a post-pandemic world. And he thinks everyone's impatient, and I don't think they are. Absolutely, they're not. And I think the other side of it, too, is this is where, okay, what we do know is he's clearly not going to go scorched earth. But beyond that, kind of what you alluded to with the mixed messaging, there was, at least for me, confusion on exactly what extent, how deep they're going to go with these cuts, with these moves. Because on the one hand, you had Rutherford saying that the problem isn't with the core. We don't need to change the core. Reiterating that the strategy is to prioritize adding young players, 26 and under, uh, this and saying that hey, this is the same as when when he first took over in terms of that overall strategy, and th- and that they just need a quick retool instead of a rebuild. But then on the other hand, he's saying that fixing the Canucks is going to take major surgery. That he's changed his position from when he first took over in terms of how much work is required, and that this is a bigger challenge than uh, than what he imagined when he uh, when he arrived in uh, December 2021. So. There, there are all these both sides of the coin, and there's an, there's enough breadcrumbs on both sides of the trail to wonder, okay, how deep is this going to cut? And but he talks me, about he talks. Oh, go ahead. No, it, go on. He talks about major surgery, but then he says we like the core and we have a lot of good players here. We just don't have a good team, which leads you to believe he wants to nibble around the edges as opposed to make deep cuts. So the the Horvat situation, much like the tank job, has been forced upon them. So they'll make the unpopular move that he's talked about by trading Bo Horvat, and that might be it, right? Like, and then we talk about buyouts. Are you kidding me? Like, why would you do that? Why would you force additional suffrage for so many years after the life of a contract? Buyouts are reserved for teams that think they're close. Teams that need to carve out immediate cap flexibility at the expense of future pain. Why would you go down that road when you should be trying to, you know, if you're making major surgery, I don't understand how that fits, right? Like it, it makes no sense to me. For sure. And I asked Rutherford point blank, considering the club's lack of cap space and lack of blue chip prospects that can help immediately. I I sort of said, those are the most important tools for quick acceleration when you're looking to turn things around sooner rather than later. Your organization doesn't have either of those. So how are you going to execute a retool? And the buyouts was the first thing that he sort of mentioned along the lines of fixing the cap. And I just, buyouts in the right situation, it can maybe squeeze squeeze you out of one jam, maybe two tops. 
But that's not going to be your primary way. That's not going to be your silver bullet for getting out of cap hell, especially when you look at a player like Oliver Ekman Larson. If you want to buy that contract out this summer, you're going to be stuck with that dead cap charge until 2031 simply for the short-term cap benefits of a team next season that's not going to realistically contend for the cup anyway. Yeah, well, that's my point, right? Like, it makes makes no sense. There is going to come a point where you need to buy out the back end of that deal. Yeah. But the longer you wait, the less the pain is. So for my money, suck it up. Suck it up. And you pay him. And you play him for the next two to three years. And when you finally get into a reasonable window, then you cut him out or you you buy him out and you deal with the the dead cap charge. You don't do that immediately. Same thing with Tyler Myers that, okay, you're going to pay that $5 million bonus. And then there might be some value in that trade. And we kind of thought that would happen with the Louis Erickson thing eventually. And it didn't because they traded him. Uh, Like, you you know what I mean? Like in terms of, um, they, they put him in, in that entire large package of, of cap uh, of contracts that were trying to move. But, you know, there was a point in time when it made sense to move that deal. It's Tyler Myers becomes movable next off season. Once yeah. you've paid that 5 million without having to buy him out. Right. So the questions become, what do you do with Brock Besser? What do you do with Connor Garland? You know, surely to God, those two have some value because their contracts aren't that onerous. Well, I'm not going to lie. Garland is one of the players that I wondered about when the idea of the buyout came out, especially if they feel that uh, they can't move that contract. And that is the important part to mention, too, is he said, if we can't move money out. So it's not as if that's going to be their number one strategy. But especially for a player like Garland, I'd have to double check uh, exactly how young he is and whether he's subject to the one third rule where you'd be on the hook for, for less money. But yeah, I mean, you really hope you don't get to the point where you're talking about one of those guys being potential buyout. Uh, but why would buyout you do guy. it now? Like, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, like, 100%. I'm so fully with you. If you want to fully rebuild, stop talking stupid about buyouts. Right. Like you, you need to. But the problem is, is they're not talking about a rebuild. They're talking about a retool. So if you are thinking you can turn this roster over and fix the areas you need to, you probably are going to have to buy them out if your timeline is two years. That's the problem. And now you're going to just leave yourself with these messes for additional years to come. And again, you can check the the age category and how it affects Besser and Garland. But, uh, and you know, and maybe there's a path to making it less painful. But when I look at it, here's the vision, folks. VIPs, here's the vision. We're going to do this in two years. We're not going to prioritize draft picks. We'd like to acquire draft picks, but we're more enamored with the thought of acquiring reclamation projects. Young players in the 23 to 25 year window that can get into our lineup today. First round draft picks like Alexi Lafreniere, and he didn't mention him by name, but certainly that's been one that's speculated with the obvious connection. We're going to try to get that guy that didn't necessarily work right away because they were rushed And we're going to see if we can create a reclamation project because we believe in our player development. So we're going to go get those guys. We're going to try to do this quickly and we'll try to move money out. We couldn't trade it. We weren't, we're not savvy enough to negotiate those trades. So we're going to try to buy people out and we're going to try to get this thing going in the next two to three years. Frightening. Absolutely. It's again, it sounds like 2014 again. Now, the one Let's key go difference get Sven I will- Let's go get Granlund. 
Like it's the exact same thing, but the reasoning was different. And the reasoning that Benning had was because the Gillis era gave up all those draft picks chasing a cup. So we don't have players that age in our organization because we didn't have the picks. So now we got to go out and get those guys. So the rationale is different, but this is the Benning plan, folks. Yeah. I mean, the only hope is that when you look at the Ethan Bear trade, for example, that could be a template of, okay, maybe they're pro scouting, or I shouldn't say maybe, this management group's pro scouting is a lot more competent than the last regime. So you're hoping that there aren't as many misses. But let's be honest, as a collective group, when you look at this management group's work and the players that sort of fall into this reclamation project sort of uh, tier, as a group, how much have Ethan Bear, Travis Dermott, Jack Stadnika, and Riley Stillman really moved the needle, right? I don't mind the idea of them actually chasing reclamation projects, right? I don't mind you you rolling the dice on a player like Ethan Bear, especially when it comes at the expense of, let's say, a, a mid-round draft pick. But reclamation projects have to serve as your supplementary source for finding talent. It's it's not going to land you the type of building block core players this franchise needs, right? And that's where you're taking a strategy that should be an organization sort of secondary method of acquiring talent and you're sort of raising it up as this is one of the main ways that we're going to bring significant value back to the organization. Now, they also do have in Horvat and Shen, but really mostly with Horvat, they do have valuable trade chips to really test this theory out against in terms of in those other examples with the Bears, the Dermots, the Nikas, they basically gave up nothing, right? So it was very low low investment sort of moves. Whereas with a piece like Horvat, you're thinking, okay, like maybe we can actually get a legit contributor here. The problem is that if you're a contending team, you want to keep the young talent that can step into your NHL lineup soon because they need to fit those ELCs onto the roster, right? If, if I'm a contending team, why would I give up a player that's ready to slot in as, slot in as a top four defenseman or top six forward next season? For a rental, right? Like these are the premium pieces that help solve a contender's crap cap crunch when you can't when you have when you live in a world where star players are paid so much and you can't really afford to to pay a middle class anymore. And the Canucks should have learned this lesson because when they shopped JT Miller, who was coming off a 99-point campaign, they weren't pleased with the offers because they lacked the impact young players who could who could sort of help right away, right? They wanted the Braden Schneider out of New York, for example. And the Rangers looked at Schneider and said, hold on, we're pretty much capped out with some of the contracts we have with Panarin and Zabinijad and Truba and on and on and on. We, need, we, we, we can't afford to give up Schneider. He's basically an untouchable. We'll give you draft picks and other sort of prospects maybe that are further away from making an NHL impact, but we're not going to peel off someone from the roster who can help right now. And that's how the Canucks eventually ended up in a position where they looked at the offers for Miller and went, oh, we're not really impressed. Let's instead pivot to an extension. So that's where I just wonder when you're in this mode of chasing young players who can help right away, you're probably going to end up sacrificing potential and upside where I don't think a team's going to give you their best prospect who's ready to help right away. They might they might be willing to, if they have a, a an amazing prospect who's 18, 19 years old, they could conceivably give that up because it's like this guy's years away from helping us as a contender solve our cap crunch or or they can give up say a first round draft pick um and and build an attractive package around that. But if you're asking them to to give you win now pieces 
when now young pieces, you're, I think, going to end up sacrificing potential and upside in terms of the players that you end up getting back. Yeah, no, I tend to agree, right? Like there, there seems to be the premium of getting that type of player. And, um, you know, I think he, he was very happy with the fact that they've got, uh, what did he say, 14 players under the age of 25 on the yeah. roster right now? Um, so to me, they've got a lot of those guys, right? And right now, I think they need, I think they need picks. And it's okay if it takes those time to marinate those guys time to marinate a bit before they get into your lineup. But because they want to accelerate this, because they're talking about a two to three year timeline, it's it's just not going to fit. So I think what all of us want to see happen isn't going to happen. Like it's just not going to happen because they have a completely different vision. Now look. At the end of the day, we probably as media are going to have to step back and say, okay, let's see you execute your vision your way. Do you know what I mean? Like we understand this is what we think is the right way because we've lived the other end of it. From Rutherford's perspective, I'm not interested in that baggage. That's not my problem. That messaging, those promises, that plan, like I'm not asked to wear that. So when people talk about, is there alignment between ownership and management? Yeah, there's perfect alignment because you don't think that's what the owners want to hear. So I'm not telling you that Jim Rutherford is trying to execute Francesco Aquilini's vision. Jim Rutherford is executing his own vision. It just happens to be the one the owners would like to hear. So if you think the owners are meddling, I'm not convinced that that's part of this. I really believe this is how Jim thinks this should be done. Forget the draft picks. Yes, we want them, but we don't want them as badly as we want young players in our lineup, right? If the draft picks come as a result, like just remember, they got rid of Jason Dickinson. They got rid of a, a reasonably high draft pick to part with the Jason Dickinson contract. And this is an organization bereft of draft picks. So at some point as media, we're going to have to move our goalposts. Because it's just like they're making it clear. We wanted a clear vision, but we actually didn't. We want a specific vision. We want a vision that includes a rebuild that's based on the acquisition of draft picks. And we're not going to get that. So, yeah, which totally. Like it or not. Like, so at some point, we now need to stop, you know, and I know Drancer is going to be like, it's, it's going to kill him to think about it in these terms. But we got to stop asking for it because it's not happening. So now we need to change the report card. We need to change how we grade this management group. First and foremost, it's you want to move caps? Can you move cap? Here's the timeline that you've set, two to three years. Here's your your what you've identified as your targets. And your targets are going to be young players. We might not agree with that, but let's start grading them accordingly. Well, because they've made it, uh, go ahead. I agree, but they've made it tougher on themselves. What they're trying to accomplish right now is, I mean, I can't even think of many examples of teams who've successfully executed retool from the position the Canucks are in. When I think of retool on the fly teams, all I think about are failure organizations recently. Teams like uh, Philadelphia just floundering in mediocrity, a club like Nashville floundering in mediocrity recently, a team like San Jose that finally maybe under Mike Greer, they might embrace a rebuild. But even when they initially dipped, they didn't immediately go towards that uh, towards that path of rebuilding. They went out and, uh, went out and uh, re-signed 
uh, a player like uh, Tomas Hurdle instead of dealing him for, for futures. All I think about when I think about this concept of retool on the fly is failure organizations. I just, can someone give me an example of a team that's been in Vancouver situation that you can point to and say, like, that's an example of a team that's done the the kind of retool the right way and actually won a Stanley Cup. I, I honestly can't think of one. And that's where we can accept that, okay, this is their vision and we'll, we'll give them patience. We'll let them see how they execute this offseason. But I don't think you're going to get a lot of faith, confidence, buy-in, and belief from this market. And I think management also has to be accepting of that given this organization's history that they're that this management group is essentially just continuing the same strategy that we've seen for the past 10 years hasn't uh, worked at all. Well, uh, there's a lot more to get into on this topic because we still haven't touched on Bruce Boudreaux. We still haven't touched on Bo Horvat. We also need to talk about really the, the most important from a heart perspective story and that's the passing of Gino Ogic. So all of that and more as what appears to be an extended version of the VanCast continues. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so Harm, let's talk Bruce Boudreaux. And, and I asked the question directly, have you spoken to any potential coaching replacements, knowing he wasn't going to name Rick Tockett by name? And he paused, uh, much like he did on the Thatcher Demko question, and basically said, yeah, he has talked to other people. He, he kind of alluded to the fact that it might not have been direct. It might have been people who know people. Uh, and, you know, having it gone that way, which means, you know, maybe you talk to an agent of a, of a potential coach as opposed to the, the coach itself or what have you. But he didn't run from the fact that, yeah, conversations have been there, suggested that those conversations have been out there for months, but that it was also something he didn't want to have to do. So, like, what the way they have treated Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux in all of this has been shameful. It has been shameful on every level from start to finish. There was a level of transparency at the front end when they said, look, um, we're not giving an extension. Here are some of the things we need to see. But then, to, you know, to constantly message it uh, directly and indirectly through leaks and direct commentary uh, to the point where you're out there looking actively uh, and, and Bruce is dead man walking here. And there's just all sorts of theories as to why the timing is what it is, what the true agenda is. This to me, if I'm an agent, if I'm a player, this is not the organization I want to play for. If this is how they treat their people, because clearly Boudreaux hasn't lost the room. Yeah, I think right off the bat to me, I don't even blame management as much as I look at the process of how Boudreaux was hired in the first place and look at ownership and say, that's where the problem starts because they were the ones that came in. And Boudreaux was kind of, he was, he was brought in and that hiring was an ownership hire. That wasn't a Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvin hire, clearly not. So 
from even management's perspective, it's like we have to inherit this new coach who wasn't even our guy and we want to bring in our our pick, but we have to sort of wait to let this process out because we just hired this hired this guy as a coach. Like that's just such a backwards logic and I can understand why management would be so would be so uh, eager to be able to find a coach that aligns with their identity, right? Because in their minds, I don't think they they look at Bruce Boudreau and necessarily think that he's a terrible coach. I think they more look at the group and the need for this club to play better defensive hockey for them, for, for the personalities you have in the locker room and have more of a disciplinarian as opposed to a vibes guy. I just think they don't like the fit at all more than is Boudreaux a good coach or is he a bad coach? And for them to not have a chance management to have hired their own coach when Rutherford was first hired, when Alvin was first hired, I think that's where the problem all starts, especially because that hire was probably made with the intention of, can we go in a second half heater last season and sneak our way into the playoffs? And look at what they got. They got the dead cap balance they wanted. They got the um, the sugar high. And what what did that do? That fooled everybody, including management, into believing that they could retool this thing as opposed to rebuilding. Because remember, remember the situation was so dire last season. And if ownership hadn't stepped in, if ownership uh, didn't have this this part to play and, and Boudreaux coming in and Boudreaux being the excellent regular season coach he is, finding magic in a bottle and, and, and lifting this group up, if it had just been some regular sort of interim hire or, or Rutherford and Alvin bring their own guy in and you have a middling sort of end to the season, season as opposed to playing 105, 110% point pace hockey the rest of the way, then maybe we would have had a different direction in the first place. Maybe, but look, if they came in with the idea that we could retool, like, let's look at this pragmatically, right? Like big picture, yeah, rebuild. But if you looked at that roster and felt that you could actually move the money you, you wanted to, and by that, you're at that moment, right? Because you hadn't done the, the better extension, right? You're probably thinking we got to get off these two defensemen that we're paying over 13 yeah. million to. So if you believe that the solution, and, and it might've been the solution hard, right? It might've been as simple as let's free up that 13 million and we're going to spend it in areas that can make us better and rebuild the blue line. If we can find a way to move off of Ekman Larson and if we can move off of, of, of Myers. And if they traded Miller, I actually think they could have retooled. Yeah, you could be right. You could be, but so my point is, is that if you look at it and if, if they could have moved those two defensemen, could they have retooled? I think they could have. But you couldn't move those defensemen. I know you couldn't, but they came in thinking they could. Mm-hmm, right. right. So so my, my point is, is when they walked in, their their assumption or belief in their, their own abilities were that they could they could do that and they simply couldn't. So now all of a sudden when it slaps you in the face that this $7.1 million cap hit is immovable. It it might be buyoutable at some point, but it's immovable. You know, now you look at this your situation a little bit differently, right? And even in terms of Boudreaux, I don't think that Rutherford hated the thought that he had to move forward with Boudreaux. He didn't maybe he didn't know about it. Maybe it wasn't explained to him correctly. I think Alvin had the bigger problem with Boudreaux at the front end. I do think both of them do now, 
because I think they both feel that Boudreaux didn't do his part in all of this, right? Oh, one um, other thing, Rutherford even mentioned on Hockey Night in Canada that he thought the contract was only till the end of last season. He did, yeah. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And I don't know that that would have prevented him from taking the job, right? But I'm just but, saying overall, like th- whether it was communication, whether it was the whole hiring process, like that lack of alignment in the first place put man has put management in a position i'm not trying to absolve management for all the blame and how they've tr- treated boudreaux because i don't i don't think they've done it right i just think organizationally from top to bottom i think it's just the way they've treated boudreaux is a sign of the dysfunction lack of communication totally. um, lack of a uh, lack of a healthy process bo horvat uh okay so let's quickly before we leave boudreaux how does it end does he get fired next week? Does he get fired during the All-Star break? Does he get fired after the deadline? Does he get fired at all? Well, based off all, uh, all the reporting, sounds like it, it might happen midseason, maybe around the All-Star break. I yeah. don't know for certain. I, ca- I can't sit here and tell you when it's going to happen, but we can all, I think, tell that the writing's on the wall. Put the man out of his misery. Like the, You're just making the organization look so bad. And I asked Jim Rutherford today, and I said this off the top of the show, are you worried about Elias Pettersson that you've got this off season? Cause I'm certainly hearing those rumblings and I've speculated for a while that I don't think Pettersson's going to want to be here, that he'll be Vancouver's version of Kachuk and Gaudreau. Um, and uh, he said, Nope. He says, we are talking to the agent and the player regularly about what we're doing, what our direction is. I mean, he is the single most important player to this team, not Quinn Hughes, not Thatcher Demko, Definitely not JT Miller. Elias Pettersson is one with a bullet. And if he leaves because he thinks this is garbage and he wants no part of this, it's an epic failure, an absolutely epic failure. He's the one guy you can't part with, period. And he may force it on you if you don't navigate the remainder of this season correctly. So... So that's certainly a concern. The other piece, you know, complete class player that you have is Bo Horvat. And he said that our best offer is on the table. So we know that that's going to end soon. I mean, it has to, right? Like, do you think that was just posturing? I mean, would it surprise me if they take one more run at him based off of, based off of, I mean, they're clearly committed to a retool. And we, when you think about how difficult it is to replace top six centermen who score the way Horvat does, would it surprise me if they take one more run at it? No. But am I sitting here thinking that he's going to be a Canuck next season? I I wouldn't bet on an extension getting done. Here's one for you before, because I do want to talk about genealogic. But before we get there, just I want to paint the picture for the media. We, we paint or sorry for the VIPs. We painted it earlier when we talked about how they they dealt with the medical side, and we do need to get into that as well. And then Jim Rutherford was just there. So there's this notion about this, the evil Canuck hockey media. All right. You want to know how many journalists were there today? For all the VIPs that were out there, do you want to know how many journalists were there today? Ten. Three of whom were members of the broadcast team to travel with the Canucks and cannot be expected to go hard at the GM. Patrick Johnson and Ian McIntyre were presumably traveling. Jeff Patterson, not allowed to attend. Uh, who are the others? Like maybe Rob Williams, maybe Wags. Pretty quiet. Like it was a pretty small group. And, 
And the guys that were asking the hard questions like in terms of volume were probably Drancer, Janauer, Kuzma, and myself. Am I missing anybody? No, I don't think so. Okay. That's not a shot at anybody that was there, right? But that is the reality of the picture that was painted. Fair? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there were a couple of people that asked more roster related and, you know, procedural things and you were there and you kind of, you know, got in, you know, at the end a little bit, but generally in terms of those guys doing that level of lifting, it was a small number and that's not a shot at anybody. It's just a reflection of the state of Canuck media. So say what you want about Canuck Twitter, but, or, or the Canuck fans, but if there is a belief that there is this ridiculous amount of media that is constantly going hard at this organization and making this a less desirable place to play. That is an effing joke because that is not what we witnessed today on a very, very, very important day in terms of the president of the organization finally being available, being grilled about medical situations and trying to force his hand in terms of outlining his vision for this organization. That's it. That's it, folks. It's no bigger. It's not ugly. Well, I might be ugly, but it's not, it's not, you know, fierce and venomous. You know, and and again, full marks to Jim Rutherford for hanging in. Craig McEwen was ready to pull him out and say, okay, that's enough. And he would, you know, he gave him a reasonable amount of time. If if C Mac had shut it off when he wanted to, that would have been fair. But Rutherford wanted totally to hang fair. in there and take more. It got easier as it went. I mean, it generally does. But there's not this you know, crazy amount of negativity. So, and yeah, there are other people on 650 that opine on the, on the team and are critical and, and others that are, that are, you know, that are on the fringes. Right. But like what you think is there is not there folks. I get what you mean, but I'm not going to lie. The media and, um, and, and, and fan pressure sort of aspect about it, Vancouver being a bigger market, constantly being sort of discussed nationally it still is playing in a Canadian market. I still think is a detractor about a detractor for some players. I just don't but think how it's a Vancouver specific this, thing. But how much of this is been brought on themselves? Like, come on, like let's be real. the The way the Bruce Boudreaux has been handled, the way most of it is. You're right. Like, like you, when you look at how the medical side, like all of it combined, you can't tell us that this group has been treated unfairly or that it's been, that it's just been too much. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, it's a Canadian yeah. market and people talk about it, but in terms of, of media pressure and look, I think the fans are really educated and I think the fans go at this team hard, but I, I don't believe like we were there when the Canadians came to town. Yeah. Just traveling media. There were more French media and English media than what we had today at home combined. Yeah, both things are true, though. I, I I agree with you that the pressure, the criticism, all of it has been fully warranted, fully justified. It's totally fair. And yet, you can also believe that it's still playing in a noisy Canadian market. Maybe not as noisy as Toronto or Montreal, but noisy nonetheless is still a detractor. Maybe, but like I said, I think this group has brought a lot on itself. And for just I'm only speaking to the media. Yeah, I'm not speaking to Canuck Twitter. I'm not speaking to, uh, you know, just the general fans that people that come to games. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that, and I'm not trying to pat 
ourselves on the back because it's been worse. Like I've lived the worst, right? So it has been what people believe it is today, but it isn't that, at least from a media perspective. Um, uh, medical side, before we um, before we blaze out of here, and, and I do want to give Gino his due here because he meant so much to the fan base. What did you make of what you heard in terms of how this medical group has been constructed and how they handle the current situation? Yeah, it was honestly really tough to gauge just because there was so much that they weren't able to get into because of uh, the privacy confidentiality reasons that they cited and some of the laws that they mentioned. What was your takeaway? Because again, for me, I was just trying to wrap my head around, okay, what, what am I actually learning here? What are they informing me? It felt like there was a lot of what they actually got into was a lot of periphery topics. And I felt like I didn't necessarily gain a, gain a thorough understanding of their process or necessarily either positive or negative gain a ton of insight into this. Yeah. I mean, the way they've constructed it, you know, they've wanted to make significant changes to the medical operation. Dr. Bill Regan, who was there uh, in the glasses next to Bruce or next to Jim Rutherford is a highly respected guy, right? Like he's good at what he does and he has been there with the previous regime and is there now. And ultimately he is in charge, but we didn't know that before because Harry Cece, Dr. Cece has been brought in and we kind of thought that he was in charge, but he's not. He is actually a consultant that is there to help kind of reconstruct the group. And he's helped bring in new people, but he's not at the top of the food chain from a decision-making standpoint. So I do think there's been some real valid questions in terms of what their process actually is and the quality of people that they've actually hired. Now, Bill Regan says that the person that worked on Tanner Pearson is somebody that he would have his family look at at any moment. Sure. Um but, you know, this at some level wasn't just an unfortunate stroke of luck as it related to Tanner Pearson to know that an infection led to this, which led to this, which led to this. I think there's been a bit more to it, or at least we're led to believe that's what the Pearson camp believes and what the PA might believe, because the quick turnaround of this mini investigation that the organization has put together where I guess Patrick Alvin talked to the players, but we weren't made privy to what the players' opinions are of the situation because he wasn't there and that wasn't communicated. And there was a limited amount of communication of what could happen as it relates to Pearson. But, you know, I guess Bill Regan is at the top, uh, Dr. Regan is at the top of the food chain in terms of the decision-making process, I suppose. He's not the one who did the surgery. But I think there are questions because, you know, when you look at what other players have dealt with, um, you know, with similar types of injuries or other injuries that they they weren't satisfied with their care, with their diagnosis, with the follow-up, you know, uh, like I'd like to hear more and I'm sure the players are going to close ranks, but I do think there are concerns in that room. So we'll, um, we'll see what comes of it. I don't think we've heard the last of it because I do think the PA is going to be involved. I think they're going to be some people that just want a higher level of accountability. I appreciate Jim Rutherford for saying, look, we if there's a way we can do things better, then let's do things better. And I, I certainly don't think that Bill Regan is not qualified. I absolutely believe he is. But somewhere along the line, some of the people that were involved have dropped the ball here. And I'm not saying it was Dr. Regan, but I, I, more's got to come out. I, I wasn't completely satisfied, but part of that, I don't know that I ever could be satisfied because of the the confidentiality surrounding the patient. And look, I'm not a, a hand and wrist special, you know, specialist myself, 
But, uh, you know, I certainly do know people that are, and, and I know some of those are shocked at the level of procedures that have had to happen here. So I think there's still a ways to go for them to improve the staff and for them to improve their medical process. And if I'm an agent, I've got questions. If I'm a free agent, I've got questions. And if they think there aren't questions, or if they think this is a one-time thing, which Rutherford alluded to at one point, I don't think they're correct. Or, and I certainly don't believe that's how it's being perceived on the outside. Yeah, fully agree. Let's talk about Gino. I want to finish this on an, on an upbeat um, topic. And, you know, we kind of debated as to whether or not we should lead the show with this. But I, it, it almost felt that that was a difficult thing to segue out of into these other things that are less important. So in the spirit of best for last, Genoagic is a unique, unique, beloved person in Canuck Nation. And, you know, when he was doing his thing, you weren't even born, right? Like, God bless you. Yeah. Uh, so I, I can't ask you to necessarily have huge memories and huge impact. But when he showed up here, when they called him up, when Pat Quinn needed some some additional toughness in the building, he called him up. Um, I want to see he was playing in Milwaukee at the time in the CHL, in the Central Hockey League, and they brought him up. And um, and he never went back down again. And when you when you think of Gino and you think of the role he played in an era of heavyweights, right? And he took on everybody that needed to be taken on. Um, didn't make a lot of noise. There wasn't, you know, he, he just did his job. And for somebody like myself, I'm not big into fighting, right? Like I, I think that's part of the game that needs to go away. At that time, you couldn't feel that way. Like that was a part of the game. It truly, truly was. And he did all the dirty work. And the relationship he formed with Pavel Bure, two players that came in at roughly the same time, two players who kind of felt like they were outsiders, right? Um, they bonded and their relationship has stayed close ever since. And it wasn't just a case of Gino being Pavel's enforcer. Gino was so much more than that. And he became a best friend and a confidant to Pavel, but everybody, you know, and, and Pavel wasn't necessarily warm and fuzzy and close with the rest of the group, right? He just did his thing. And, you know, he, we knew what a great hockey player he was, but Gino was beloved and respected and cared for by everybody in the group. He looked after everybody, but he was also a guy that cared about people off the ice and players felt like they could talk to him and, you know, he was just this larger than life figure that could put his arm around a guy and make him feel better. It wasn't just that he was defending you on the ice. His presence might have made you a little taller, but his presence in the locker room also made you better. And when you look at what happened when he was in the hospital a few years back and Canuck fans went to the windows and started chanting his name. It was touching and it just made you think that this guy had just such an indelible impact. And it wasn't just because he was a fighter. And for me, you know, we had a, we had a strong relationship way back in time. When I first got hired at TSN, I was helping produce um, David Pratt's show last call. And we brought Gino in to do one of the shows, you know, and I got to know him a little bit more then. I certainly covered him, you know, while he was a player. But got to know him a little bit more then. And, you know, just we we spent a bit of time afterwards together. 
And, you know, we've had a few dinners together and just, you could talk to him about anything, you know, like he just, he was great at listening. You know, he could tell you stories about what it was like to play in those days. Uh, you know, what he thought of the players today, whether he thought they were soft, whether it would it'd be easy to think that a tough guy like Gino could just look at player X, Y, and Z and say they're soft or say that the team was soft or say that today's level of hockey is soft. And it wasn't about that. He had a way of analyzing the game and knowing who fit and who wasn't the right guy in the room at the right time. And he had an understanding of the game that you just wouldn't think a player that had his role would have, but he had it. And, you know, for me, we'd, we'd go down the elevator and he'd ask me CFL questions, right? Because he would have watched the game the other night and he would want to know about it. Or he'd want to know about it. You know, he'd want to know about the NFL. And he knew I was such a football guy. So he would always want to talk about that, right? I'd ask him a hockey question or I'd ask him a health question and he wanted to talk about football. So, you know, the relationship that we were able to, to build and, you know, I'm not going to say that it was a constant daily that we would always be texting each other. We wouldn't, but just knowing he was there and knowing he was a part of the organization and the legacy and what it meant to be a Canuck and, you know, how Pat Quinn viewed him and just, you know, the organization has been polarizing for so many, for so long. Nobody felt that way about Gino, right? He was never polarizing. He got along with everybody, was respected by everybody and had time for everybody. And I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss having him a part of this market. 100%. I mean, that was so beautifully said. I mean, the only thing I, I you know, I, I can add from my perspective is just the, the, the way that my family sort of got into hockey originally is, um, is my dad way back, um, obviously got hooked on, hooked on the Canucks on, uh, on the 94 team. And Gino was one of his favorite players. He was one of the, one of the, one of the guys that really made him fall in love with the team. And then obviously my dad's um, love with the team resulted in my love for hockey and my love for, for the 2011 team going up. So in an indirect way, that's had such a profound impact on on so many, and it, it must be similar for so many other Canucks fans, where it it that '94 team created a, a whole generation, and then that generation leads to the next generation of, of fans. Um, just just in the steps of I, I loved hockey because my dad loved hockey, and so um, it it's immeasurable to think about the impact that he had on Vancouver on this hockey community. And, um, it was, I, it's just kind of hard to, to, to put into words and in my, and my brain's going a million miles, miles an hour, just trying to, trying to think, think in all these different directions about the, the type of impact he, he had, like I said, it's just immeasurable. It's intangible. You, you can't put a number on it sort of thing for what he meant to the, meant to the city and meant to these fans. Yeah. You know, and, you, and when you look at every, you know, every city seems to have a guy that they're really attached to, whether it's Edmonton and Dave Semenko or it's. Um, you know, Dave Brown in Philadelphia or, um, you know, like pick a guy in every city, Tim Hunter in Calgary. I mean, you know, Chris Neal in Ottawa, right? Like we kind of roll our eyes at the fact that he's getting his number retired, but you know, sometimes you can, you can have a different role and have a massive impact. And in the nineties, if you're a Canuck fan, there is simply no way if you were to pick your top three favorite Canucks, that Gino wasn't among them, right? It was 
Trevor Linden, Kirk McLean, and Gino Ogic, or it was Pavel Bure, Cliff Ronning, and Gino Ogic, or it was Jeff Brown, uh, Jeff Cordinal, and Gino Ogic. Like there was simply no way he could not have been one of your favorite players. And even though he was the toughest guy off on the ice, he didn't present that way off the ice. You know, he was just different. He was different. Like if you saw some of the generally tough guys are some of the best people you'll ever meet, right? Like fighters from that era, but he took it to a different level. And when you look at his impact that he's made on the indigenous community, you read Ethan Bear's comments. Um, he made an impact on a lot of people. And I'm I'm shocked, even though he's been in bad health, like I saw him a couple of weeks ago at a game and we were talking and he just seemed great and gregarious. So I'm still shocked that it happened. And I'm saddened that it happened and Canucks Nation and all of us are lesser for not uh, having him be a part of our community. And um, we were better for having had him as long as we did. So um, our condolences to his family. Our condolences to everybody that ever knew him. And um, if we are all Canucks, he was right there near the top of it. So uh, with that, we're going to end this edition of the VanCast because there was it, like just an emotional time for the last 48 hours. I'm having a tough time not being emotional talking about Gino. Um, I will let you know if that you're looking for other podcasting options. Brandon Tanev of the Red Hot Seattle Kraken joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. Uh, actor and director Jason Priestley joins the roundtable with Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, Mike Russo uh, to promote his documentary, Offside, the Harold Ballard Story. Uh, that's Wednesday on the Athletic Hockey Show. And as for us, you can follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform, leave a rating and a review, subscribe to The Athletics, uh, the NHL's YouTube channel at youtube.com at The Athletic Hockey Show. You can get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash bandcast drancer and i will be back later this week uh, i think we're going to do it thursday we're going to have a live room it may not be tied into a game but we are going to do that uh, very soon so there will be a, a live room this week so make sure you tune in and follow us on twitter so we can give you the exact details around that but for harm and myself first of all thank you to jim rutherford for giving us a lot to talk about and not talking about <laughs> a pretty impressive comeback win by the canucks the other day against uh, carolina uh, at the end of a really difficult road trip and um, uh, Wednesday they're back on the ice so looking forward to seeing that.